This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Good evening. Uh, Hello, welcome to Brexit Tamed a special Times Plus event here at the magnificent Emmanuel Centre. I'm Matt Chorley, editor of the Times Red Box podcast and morning politics email. If you don't already subscribe, you won't be able to leave tonight until you do. It's brilliant to see so many of you here and a special welcome to all of our new subscribers. According to the organisers of the People's Vote March, there are more than a million of you here tonight, uh, which which is absolutely fantastic. Uh, So here we are, uh, with Theresa May's deal successfully passed and Britain officially leaving the EU on Friday. No, that's not right. So here we are. Here we are with the Commons voting tonight on Theresa May's deal, with MPs finally coming to their senses and ensuring that Brexit passes smooth... No, that's not right either. Uh, So here we are tonight, three days until Britain was supposed to be leaving the EU, and we still have no idea if, when or how Brexit might happen. Luckily, we've assembled the finest minds in the Times and the Sunday Times to try to explain how we got here and where we are going as we come together in a collective howl of anguish asking, what the hell is going on? Obviously, you've all come because what you really want to hear is from the uh, Times uh, journalists and columnists, but we thought we should probably let a couple of uh, politicians in. The two that we've chosen, the only thing they've got in common is they haven't got any hair. Uh, And that's basically uh, where the the similarities end. Uh, So we've got a Brexiteer writer for The Times interviewing a Remainer, and then a Remainer writer interviewing a Brexiteer. So let's begin with our first one-on-one interview. Please welcome to the stage The Times' new sketchwriter and enthusiastic Brexiteer, Quentin Letts, and answering the questions, the frontman for the newest almost political party on the block, the independent group's Chuka Amuna. Uh, you have today, uh, you have now mouldy old pinstripe against beautiful Armani. And um, <laughs> he even smells beautiful, I can tell you. <laughs> Chuka, here you are. You're, you're 40 years old. You're a nice public school boy. You're an ex-cathedral chorister. You used to play the cello. Where's the butt? You're, you're married. Butt coming here. You're married to a lovely, lovely lady and you've got a beautiful daughter. I have to ask you, why are you in politics? What are you doing here? What <laughs> drives you? That's really what I'm asking. Well, I suppose I sometimes ask myself that question. Um, look, I, I, you, you do this job uh, ultimately because you want to change the world, which sounds so cliched and so idealistic, uh, but that is the truth of it. And 
in spite of the fact that I may have vigorous disagreements with a lot of people in the House of Commons, and I, you know, we all come from different political traditions, I genuinely do think that the majority of people in that place want to improve the lot of our country. And uh, for me, it started in my community that I was born into, Streatham, you know, I'm a Streatham boy. Uh, we have an incredible community, uh, dynamic, energetic, eclectic, yes, but, but we have our problems. What, 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 is, what is your well, core belief here? My core belief is ultimately that the circumstances of your birth should not dictate where you end up in life. And ultimately, we live in a country where that is still the case. And I see it vividly in the community in which I grew up. And if, whenever I stop being an MP, and being a member of parliament is essentially temporary, you just don't know how long it's gonna be temporary for. But if, at the end of my time in parliament, I have done some small amount to correct that, then I will feel that I've actually done something decent. So if it's a short-term process, being in parliament sometimes, mm. When do you think the next general election will be, and are you going to stand in it? Uh, I intend to stand in the next general election. I've got no intention of leaving the field. Who knows? It could be in the next four months. It could be in two years. Uh, we don't know. If you, stand, um, but, if you stand, where will it be? Well, to be frank, I haven't actually made any decisions on that. So not However, necessarily straight I don't know. I literally don't know. Somebody Look, said to me you'd, you'd sold your house in Streatham. Is that, is that right? Does that, does that signify anything or not? Well, I've still got a family home in uh, Streatham. Oh. But, um, uh, but the, the point is, is uh, look, the, all of us in the independent group left our parties um, because out of principle we felt that we couldn't stay where we were. We've made perhaps the most difficult decision any member of parliament has to make in leaving your party. I'm slightly bemused sometimes when I hear us described as kind of vainglorious careerists because <laughs> the ultimate non-careerist thing to do is to leave one of the main parties. But what we end up doing at the next general election, I mean, people think you have this grand plan of calculation. Um, uh, it's not all mapped out. But what I am absolutely certain of is people are thoroughly fed up with the choice that they currently have of two old parties which were born of a different Britain, the 20th century or further back, uh, and don't reflect... The Lib Dems? What happened to the Lib Dems? Well, they? they are not one of the main parties, some would, in a two-party system. Too harsh. But that's, but that's actually the problem, because in 21st century Britain, these two big tent parties cannot possibly represent the tapestry that is modern Britain. We kind of, in part because of technology, we live in a multi-party democracy, really, but we have a two-party electoral system and constitution. And I just think, look at the shit show, excuse me, you know, excuse me but look at it over the last three years. It hasn't been operating very well. So mean? are we doomed to carry on with this nonsense or does everybody here actually want more of a choice and to be voting for parties, not because you feel you have to, to keep the other lot out or because they're the least worst option, but to have something you vote for because you want to vote for them. Now Isn't that, that better? Yeah, but there may be... <laughs> there are plainly people here who would like to vote for you. They won't all be living in Streatham. Does this mean... <laughs> Does this mean that there, there would be some sort of party banner 
that you would stand under, or even a party? Are you going to, yes. are you going to have formed a party yes. by the time of the next general election? We hope to have done so by the time of the next general election, If it's yes. in, say, two months, you'll be able to do that? Well, that will depend on the Electoral Commission. Uh, but certainly by the end of this year, we want to ensure that when you go to the ballot box, you are not faced with a choice of Corbyn or Theresa May. We think this country deserves a better suite of options than that sorry disaster that has delivered the chaos that we've seen over the last few months. Somebody, and one of your colleagues said to me, uh, a, a colleague well disposed to you, uh, said to me that one of the things that Chuka really might, might do if, if, if Streatham went wrong or if you stood somewhere else and it didn't come mm. to pass that you made it into the Commons, you might be fancying, you might be eyeing up the London mayoralty. <laughs> I've heard this. Yeah. I, I, I do not want to become the mayor of London. I want to make sure that I mean, people... Does, does that, is that a popular idea? Would this man not be a good mayor of London? There may, be, there may be support for you. Uh, but, but the thing is, I, I actually think in terms of our national government and what is happening at a national level in British politics, it's thoroughly broken. And look, the easy thing would be to leave the field, go and do something out of politics. I've never had any ambition to retire in politics. I've always wanted to go back into the private sector. And when I decided to leave the Labour Party, there was an option there, which is, OK, well, you could just leave but I thought that wouldn't be the right thing to do by my constituents. And if I feel like so many millions of people in this country politically homeless, the big difference is that as a member of parliament, you can actually do something about that and provide people with an alternative. And look, if it comes to the next general election and people want to revert to the same old choices in what up to now has been a pretty rigged system, then let them make that decision, and we'll go off and do something else. But it may be, and I believe it will be the case, that people will be looking for something different. And if you took how people felt when I was first elected in 2010, after a year of the whole expenses scandal, and multiplied that at least tenfold, you're going to be where I think people will feel about British politics now, which is that we cannot carry on like this. It is not... It is not fair on our country, and it doesn't do justice to the Britain of today, the politics that we have. Look, you watch it, and, you know, I sit in there, and I think, you know, you look at the two teams of, uh, that we are presenting to the British public as your options for government, and I just think, surely we can do better than this. Yes, it's the same boring old buggers saying the same boring old things, basically. Well, you, you said it. So, but the question is, do, are we actually going to do something about it? And my view is, is actually, ultimately, and Brexit um, wasn't the cause of this, but I think it is an example of how our country has changed. When I uh, joined the Labour Party uh, 22 years ago, it was coming towards, the, I think we were coming towards the tail end of a form of politics in this country where class dictated primarily how people voted. Uh, and your left-right view of how you organise the economy, that is being completely disrupted. It's not that it's not relevant anymore. It's still relevant, but your age, whether you are internationally minded or nationalistic, whether you're socially liberal or conservative, uh, your educational qualifications, all these things are disrupting voting patterns and behaviour, which I think cracks this whole thing open and gives us the opportunity 
to change, reset, and reconfigure how we do things. Just think how your lives have changed. Look at all this technology in this room on your devices and think how you live now and how different it is to what it was 10 years ago. And then you look at politics, and it hasn't changed in the last 50 years. It is, it sure. is as old-fashioned, antiquated, and out-of-date as the building that it's sitting in, which is actually symbolic of what's happening. It's crumbling. And yet, Bits of and the yet, place are falling on and us. Yet, and yet Jeremy Corbyn has electrified uh, a section of, of the young vote in a way that Tony Blair didn't. <laughs> He has. I don't know you about cannot that. deny it. What is more shocking about the electrification or the comparison with Tony Blair? But um, look, uh, I think that what happened in the 2017 general, general election was quite extraordinary. I don't think we've seen anything like it. Labour definitely had a much better campaign than the pitiful campaign of the Conservatives. But if you actually look behind the reasons why people were voting, they were voting for one of the two main parties very often in spite of those parties, to keep the other lot out, to keep Corbyn out as Prime Minister because you don't trust him on your national security, to keep May out because you don't want her delivering some crazy hard Brexit, for example. You didn't have people making, very often, a positive choice to vote H for Hang on, your, your majority shot up at the last general election. Yes. Pos probably because of Jeremy... Well, well... Actually, probably because of Theresa May, but well, also because of... Uh, uh, <laughs> because... Who do of, I thank for this? Because you of... Know. <laughs> Because of, there he is, old Corbyn, aged 95, uh, um, uh, the voice of youth. I mean, there is no. something about that man, isn't there? Uh, tell, well, tell, tell, tell us. Well, if Can you, you just tell the audience? You and Jeremy Corbyn, what went wrong in that beautiful relationship? <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll come on to him in a minute, but if you, if you look at what actually long. happened in my constituency, um, my neighbour is Kate Hoey, who has a slightly different view to me on whether or not this Brexit thing should go ahead. She said, no, no deal Brexit. It's just like uh, it is actually managed in some way, shape or form. But anyway, uh, I, I digress. You probably agree with her. Um, but she got a 3% increase in her vote. And I got an increase in my vote of over 15%. And that is definitely down to my position on Brexit. Uh, I was very clear about my position on Brexit. I represent the constituency that scored the highest remain, remain vote in the country and we're proud. Um, so that kind of explains, I think, what happened in Stretton. Brexit massively coloured the vote. But in ma ma man to man, how did, man you, to man, how did you get on with, with, uh, with, with Mr Corbyn? Uh, look, we, Can we, you tell us about that, that in, now infamous meeting where you were in Mrs May's room, the, <laughs> the leader of the opposition walked in, saw Chuka there, and then walked straight back out, steaming out without saying a word. I mean, things well, must be very bad between you two. To so, have reached that pass. Well, you know, I was just... I came, I came down the corridor with Anna Subri. And, uh, you know, we just were hanging out in the corridor. And then Jamie... Uh, Jamie. Jeremy. Jeremy. I haven't even drunk anything yet, by the way. Uh, Jeremy comes in. And I said, oh, hi, Jeremy. How are you? And, he, you know, he looked at... You can't at me. say that. Why not? <laughs> anyway, no, So you... I said, hi. I, I said, hi. In fact, that's him on my phone now. I, I said, oh, hi. And he just kind of looked at me like I was, you know, just some disease or something. <laughs> Went to the front of the kind of queue of different people who were waiting to go into this meeting with the Prime Minister, and you could see there was some unhappiness. And Kari Murphy also looked at me like a a bag of rubbish had been left in the corridor. And then they just went out when there was a vote. And then when we went in the room, Ian Blackford said, you know, uh, Prime Minister, is, is Jeremy not joining us? And she said, well, um, I'm afraid, Chuka, it's because you're here. 
And she said, but I did tell him I was the one who gave out the invites. So if he didn't want to come, he wasn't going to come. So and how, how petty has it grown been? Grown-up politics. I so. mean, I imagine, I imagine that moving party or leaving the Labour Party mm. was an upheaval for you, uh, an emotional upheaval, a social upheaval uh, in parliamentary terms. You yeah. have to change where you sit, which is more important than it sounds, actually, because yeah. it changes your routing. But uh, who have been... Have there been moments when people have been actually quite unpleasant to you uh, in the Commons? How has it worked on a social side, on, Do you on, know on that personal level? It really surprised us because the, the, the argument that we made when we were explaining our departures, both at both of the press conferences of the former Labour people and former Conservative people, uh, were rooted in our own personal stories and experiences which shape why you make the decisions you make. And, you know, I think sometimes authenticity in politics is often defined by how extreme you are. Uh, and I think that's a load of garbage. I think you have to be true to yourself. And everyone's got their own story, so we told it. And we also explained by reference to our values why we could no longer stay in our parties. And I think that that made much more of an impression on a lot of colleagues and the public outside than we, than we figured. A lot of people in the Labour Party were kind of of the view, they were like, obviously what happened, and it still happens to Luciana Berger, is absolutely appalling, and the anti-Semitism and racism that she has faced is, is just been abominable. Have you had that? I've had a bit of racism, but nothing like... What, what from uh, Labour members? Uh, no, 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 not since I went in that, in, in that way, but, um, okay. uh, but nothing like uh, Luciana at all. But there was a kind of feeling that she's uh, pregnant, she's going on maternity leave, and she suffered the anti-Semitism. And, of course, it would be absolutely terrible if she left the party, but the rest of them, they were just kind of like Corbyn malcontents. They were always kind of... And I think what, what took a lot of us by surprise is that we weren't all dismissed in the way that I thought we would be after we did it. And a lot of people, some colleagues told us they were weeping when they were watching the press conference. And because so many have said to us that couldn't disagree with a word that you said. And I just reached a different point. And I was dreading voting on the evening, uh, that Monday evening that we did it, because I, like you said, you, you, what's people's reactions gonna be? Are they gonna blank us? Are they gonna have a go at us? But actually, completely the opposite. People came up and hugged us, kissed us, said, you know, respect to you guys. and. In the end... Clearly, I don't believe that John McDonnell kissed you. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't recall seeing him. But, I mean, look, ultimately, the Labour Party is, uh, as I joined it, doesn't exist anymore. Is it a scary place? It's deeply unpleasant. Um, going to local party meetings is not a nice experience. Well, because of momentum? Yes. Uh, pl plotting against you and... Uh... Well, they, I, I was a bit of a tricky customer because momentum's not great on diversity and I'm the first person of African-Caribbean heritage to represent one of the Brixton seats. And so, you know, Chris Williamson brought his deselection tour to my constituency. Well, that does sound as if you're saying there is a bit of racism in the Labour Party that was directed at you. Uh... I wouldn't say so much at a, a local level, but Chris bought this kind of tour uh, and the room in a constituency like mine that is, you know, 40% BAME, there was like no face of colour in, in the room. So uh, I've, I was always a bit of a tricky customer in that sense. But the, look, the long and the short of it, it is a different party. Uh, it's, this is a, of a completely different order to what happened to the Labour Party in the 1980s, and I didn't go into politics and join a political party to spend all my time organising and fighting 
an internal civil war. You go into politics, as I said at the start of this, to change the world. And I left the Labour Party so I could spend more time trying to do that. Now, in our last three minutes, can I just ask, tomorrow you're going to put down an amendment uh, in this, uh, in, when, when Oliver Letwin is briefly Prime Minister. Uh, we're going to, uh, it's going to be a magnificent sight, Sir Oliver, uh, as our it's PM. Called, it's called parliamentary democracy. Sorry, that's what it's called, is it? It's not called overturning the public will. But anyway, um, uh, uh, so you're going to put down an amendment suggesting a second referendum. Uh, is that right? So an amendment has been tabled in the name of Margaret Beckett. It is what has up to now sometimes been referred to as the Kyle Wilson Amendment because Phil Wilson and Peter Kyle, two Labour MPs, had been promoting it. All of the TIG MPs' names are down it's on that amendment. It's a terrible name, TIG, isn't it? You need to better. Can you not? Are you, are you well, working on a more... We're open to suggestions, Quentin. <laughs> I was going to say and independent, looking... but the trouble is you don't really believe in independence. You're the opposite of... Uh... Well, we're independent at the moment. We don't, like, have a whip. We are, we are independent yeah. pending the creation of a party. Can I quickly ask you, do manifestos matter? Where is this Electoral going? Electoral man... No, I, because... <laughs> well, it's a fairly basic question. Because uh, Conservative MPs and Labour MPs were all elected on the manifesto mm. that they respect the referendum, and yet uh, what's going on in the Westminster at the moment doesn't seem necessarily. Well, to I be actually going put on. out a separate manifesto during the 2017 election campaign with a number of other colleagues, many of whom are in the independent group now, setting out a different position to that of the Labour parties, which was basically to sponsor a kind of hard Brexit. So do you think we'll see more of that a sort of coupon-style, sort of uh, added um, a manifesto from, uh, from MPs? Do, would well, you I think people accept that, you know, generally speaking, you can get a sense of the general values of a member of parliament uh, by reference to a manifesto that st they're standing on. But there is a reason under our constitution that it's the name of the person who goes on the ballot paper first and foremost. And I think people like to have members of parliament that act with independence of thought. I mean, I know the way that, you know, one of the reasons I left the Labour Party is I just couldn't deal with this whole thing where you've got this leader who's this deity who we like. You liked it when Tony you know, Blair was leader. Come I on. didn't, actually. Didn't you? I Can didn't. I last, last ask I was you? a bit of a rebel in those days. As well. I just don't like that. I think it demeans people. Yes, people want a leader. Yes, they want a sense of direction, but they don't need some kind of like Messiah figure do you still see who's going to do everything. Uh, yeah, I occasionally speak to uh, former leaders of parties all the time. All right. uh, that was such a politician's answer to a question, really, wasn't it? The old politics. And, and last, the old uh, politics. Um, uh, our last 26 seconds, uh, Choker, what, yes. what are you going to be doing four years' time? What will you be doing? Will you be, will you be world king? Uh, 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 will you be, I don't know, a catwalk model? Uh, um, will you be a, a TV presenter or will you be London Mayor? I'll be editor of the Times and you can work for me. That's a good idea. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>
United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. So now we're going to turn the tables. Um, we're going to have a uh, Remain writer from The Times interviewing a uh, Brexiteer. And actually, they were both on the panel uh, at a, an event we had during the referendum campaign in 2016. So they've got a lot to catch up on. Please welcome award-winning Times columnist and the interviewer who scares off half the cabinet, Rachel Sylvester, and former Tory leader, ex-cabinet minister, leading Brexiteer, and as we learned at the weekend, sports car enthusiast, <laughs> Ian Duncan-Smith. So, Ian, how many sports cars have you got? <laughs> it hardly comes out of the garage, except when I go to Chequers, so there you are. <laughs> Very good. So you're one of the most passionate Brexiteers, a lifelong Eurosceptic. Are you just horrified by how things are going? Did you ever think it would be this bad in your wildest dreams? Um, not until 2017, I didn't, know. I think the biggest mistake was to hold a general election when nobody wanted it, okay. least of all the people who were going to go and fight it. The mistake was, <clears throat> you can't hold an election when you haven't planned for it, and we ran into a Labour summer campaign, and I did warn that you can't have snap elections now, but nobody listened to me. Uh, not for the first time, it has to be said, and uh, <laughs> it's a theme of my life. But the point is that, um, uh, that uh, you can't have three-week snap elections anymore, because the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, which I didn't much like, which we'd done when we were in coalition, meant basically it's six weeks, probably. And that means you can't have one theme in a snap election the last six weeks because people get bored after two weeks uh, and then they want to know about other things, quite rightly, because you're asking them to put them back in government. So that's where it all went badly wrong, I think. But on Brexit, it, 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 it does shock you, doesn't it, how chaotic everything is. Who's to blame? Who's most to blame? Is it Theresa May? Is it the EU? Is it the civil servants? Is it the Remainers in the Cabinet? Who do you point the well, finger at? I think it's, at? Just a, it's a classic case of... Government under our system, <clears throat> it doesn't work unless it has a majority because okay. the problem is Parliament, it's very difficult. When I, I, I travel a lot to Europe and I, my whole family live and some are retired in Italy and I'm passionate about all that. And when I talk to many uh, in continental Europe, they always struggle slightly to understand why is it Parliament matters so much in the UK in an unwritten constitution. And funnily enough, this process has been the best explainer to everybody abroad for the wrong reasons of exactly how our constitution works. 
In other words, we don't have a written constitution, and it's always been based on precedent, just like our courts are, for the most part, on English law, based on precedent. Once you no longer have a settled order, then the precedent starts to get challenged, and the speaker... Yes, moving on. And um, <laughs> you then end up with uh, a, a case where Parliament is where it is now. It's, you can't agree anything, because it's a yes-no vote. Uh, so they're going to try these indicative votes. I'm pretty sceptical about Parliament ever being able to decide anything that isn't given to it by a government to either say yes or no to, and that's really where its purpose is. But I come back to the fact that without uh, a majority, it's impossible to run something, because the other side, an opposition, certainly Labour will never normally in opposition agree with the Conservatives. Conservatives tend to agree more often with Labour when <coughs> Conservatives are in opposition. The education reforms, for example, Conservative front bench back those reforms. That doesn't really happen the other way. It's not a criticism, it's just the way it is, a bit more tribal. So ultimately it's Theresa May's fault for calling the election and for the way she ran the campaign. But what about her she was handling... certainly in the middle of that, yeah. <laughs> what about her handling of the whole Brexit process? Do you think that's... Well, it's... Again, I think it's difficult, and this was the whole point, really, having had the vote and said that they were going to deliver on it. I think the key problem is, if you're not really clear about how you're going to deliver on it and what your real purpose in all of this, then the negotiation itself becomes a problem. And then you get into damage limitation. And, you know, I've been in business, uh, you know, negotiated with lots of people. The truth is, you enter a negotiation knowing very much where you want to be, knowing pretty much where you think they can be, and the rest is about the balance of what you give, what you don't, what you take. We entered this negotiation believing that we would be able to have a reasonable discussion with them. They came into it very hard-nosed, quite right, and promptly said, here's what we're going to do, otherwise we're not going to talk. We should have responded, fine, okay, then we don't have anything to discuss at this point, and you are sending us off in a particular direction which will be as damaging to you as us, instead of which, in 2017, I say come back to the election, but the reality is that we signed up to some of the things that we had in our back pocket, we gave those away, and we didn't have anything then to negotiate with, and so the result has been pretty much a process of damage limitation for the next 12 months. I did, back in 2017, say to the Prime Minister, and to publicly as well on the BBC, although that may not be that public these days, the point is I did say... Uh, sorry about that, but um, I did say that... Um, you can't sign this because this is everything that they want. So yeah. what are you expecting them to give you back in return? You're, not gonna, you're just going to have no negotiation. But there is also a strange thing that it's the Brexiteers who are blocking Brexit. It's almost as if you guys don't really want to own it and take responsibility for the delivery of Brexit. Um, I'm something... very happy to own it and take responsibility, but I'm not in government, so... That's, but, by the way, not a bid to be in government at the moment. But Brexiteers had all the main offices of state responsible for delivering Brexit, and they ran away from the task. So is it Brexiteers who are destroying Brexit? I think everybody who's involved in this bears some measure of the responsibility for the situation we're in. But it is a fact that uh, some of those that resigned, resigned because their view of where they wanted to be and thought we ought to be, was fundamentally ignored. Um, whether it's the Prime Minister or the Chancellor or whatever, the reality was <coughs> that uh, their view was simply being bypassed. And if you were, for example, Dominic Raab, who finds out secondhand that the negotiator who's meant to be reporting to him has actually been dispatched there separately to sign up to a treaty which he had not yet signed off on, you have to say to yourself, 
am I really here for a purpose, or is this now a, a position solely rather like the Lord Chancellor's, that we just bring them out on public occasions, really? But it does look a bit like, it's a bit like Jeremy Corbyn, actually. It's easier to be an opposition, the purity of opposition, being able oh, to always. shout betrayal. Do you, do you think there's a risk of that for some of your colleagues, at least? There is. This is an important thing about, to understand about this issue, because I remember this goes back to Maastricht, which, when I came in, uh, I took the view that <clears throat> Maastricht was setting the European Union on the wrong course. I'd voted to join, was content to be in it, but I took the view that the rise of the centralization of the qualified majority voting was going to make it almost impossible eventually for us to stay in. I reached that conclusion quite early on. I did actually say, if we pass this treaty, what will follow will be a whole series of others, and we will find ourselves having to make a big decision about leaving, which I didn't want to do back at Maastricht. Uh, and it's like that. It's such a big issue that it automatically splits. It splits families, yeah. it splits regions, it splits cities, and Parties. it splits in Parliament. Mm -hmm. People who have had lifelong agreements about stuff have now found themselves actually disagreeing about stuff, and the yeah. passions run high. And without that sense of direction from a government, because it has a majority, then what happens is everybody starts to drift. Yeah. And that's the point. It's always the case in politics. If you don't seize the initiative, somebody else will. So and Parliament you, is trying to do that at the moment. And do you think that's a good thing? Do you worry that you're going to end up with a softer Brexit or even no Brexit? Well, I worry that we <coughs> let the public down because we don't deliver it. Okay. Uh, and my sense is that uh, I was reasonably clear and pretty clear about what people wanted. They wanted us to leave. We obviously want to get a good agreement. That's what was always the, the, uh, the process. But um, as I say, that process has been, frankly, rather badly run. And uh, we are where we are. But I still think that we will get through this. Uh, I think there's a pretty good chance that the Prime Ministers don't, you're going to quote me on this one, but the Prime Ministers deal will get through. How? Are you going to vote for it? I can't possibly tell you all of the answers to that because um, I'm in the middle of talking to people. But you might vote for it yourself. I have kept my options completely open is my standard line. Okay. But, but I, Jacob you know, Rees-Mogg is caving, Boris Johnson's yeah. wobbling. Yeah. Are you also wobbling? I never wobble. Uh, <laughs> you, uh, what would make my you... wife thinks I wobble quite a lot these days. But, um... <laughs> what would make you vote for her deal? Well, I just think it's a balance of choices. At the end of the day, you reach a position where are we leaving or aren't we? Okay. I think there is a group in Parliament that is genuinely uh, determined that we don't leave, uh, which I think I actually think will cause mayhem if Parliament does this. I think we have to get out. But clearly... And do you think her deal is maybe now the only way Well, there way is certainly the balance out. of uh, the repeal of the 72 uh, European Communities Act, which is the definition of leaving. That happens within hers. Now, there's lots yeah. of problems. The backstop's a problem. Yeah. But, you know, could we get through that? Could we get agreement? I went to Barnier myself with a team of four uh, experts, and we presented the alternative arrangements for the backstops, which are about open borders and the way they function using existing technology. You don't need modern technology at all. The truth is, behind closed doors, they kind of accepted that's probably where we'll end up. And what we need them to do is accept that. So there's now a legal position for them to have to agree that process with us before the end of the year, and the then we D can get it done. The DUP are now saying that a, even a year-long extension would be better than her deal. Do you think they're wrong, or do you, think that, do you see what they're saying? No, I think anyone that says an <coughs> extension is better than this is fundamentally wrong. Why? Because we have to tell the British people that we've left, mm. or we haven't left, but I think uh, remaining in is not leaving. I don't 
I know it sounds stupid, mm. but <laughs> believe, believe it or not, I but have had that like conversation it, with some of my colleagues. It does sound like you... Let, you let's just work out the definition of, of remaining in and not leaving. Uh, I think it's... <laughs> it but in Parliament, like that's quite a difficult question. To, it sounds like you're coming around to the deal, though. It sounds like you're coming around to her deal. Well, I've always said <laughs> <I've> an open <laughs> mind. And there are reasons why I'm simply not able to pursue that answer. Um, would it help if she said she'd quit? I have to talk to my colleagues about that, but I think that the Prime Minister has already said that she will quit. So that's not a case of <clears throat> whether she will quit. She said that last year. The question is, when is that likely to happen? And I think that's a matter only she can make that final decision. And when would you like her Would to it quit? help? I think it would help some. To, if she quit when? I can't give you an answer to that. <laughs> Sooner rather than later, though. Uh... Sooner is definitely on the cards, <laughs> because later is beyond her expectation that she's leaving. So, before the summer? This is getting quite cryptic, isn't it, really? <laughs> I, feel like this is, I feel like this is one of the back pages of the Times, and the puzzle is now developing itself. Um, I, I hope I'm helpful. Um, so, when you were driving around in your sports car, did, in that meeting, <clears> did she say in checkers that... I did offer her to come and sit in the passenger seat. <laughs> Did she say if she drove around she in said it no, that by she'd the way. quit? Yeah, did she? <laughs> what about quitting? Did she say in checkers that she was going to quit early, and that's why everyone's now getting nice to her? Uh, well, funnily enough, <clears throat> I'm, uh, I don't think that we actually had that conversation oh, in really? quite okay. such explicit terms. But implicit, maybe. Well, <laughs> I've got 650 colleagues who work by being implicit, but never quite reaching an agreement. So and <coughs> only the Prime Minister can be explicit. So and, um, if she does go, who do you want to replace her? You... I miss you that. If she goes, who yes. do you want to replace her? I'm not going to put my name forward. <laughs> so, I'm sorry You're the only that. Tory MP who isn't. I am but... literally the only Tory MP. <laughs> so um, it'll be a little who... bit like the Grand National. Um, <laughs> So it's who survives the fences that will come up, but quite a lot of fallers, I think, in the first fence. But who will you bag? Who is? Who will you bag? I don't know okay. if it happens. Right. Yeah. But I don't know. The answer is because I'd like to hear what they have to say. Okay. Uh, like, to be fair, they've said an awful lot, but the the difference is what they have to say about what they actually will do, not what they think somebody else should do. Is always an interesting moment. And is there any bit of you that feels sorry for Theresa May, having been Tory leader? There, yeah. there is a sense that, is this party just totally unmanageable? <laughs> I think all parties <clears throat> are ultimately totally unmanageable, unless, of course, uh, you have, as I said, a majority and the opportunity to serve in government. So, at the end of it all, Ambition plays a part in colleagues' heads, of course it does. Mm. Sometimes it plays too much of a role. I have known colleagues who have been on the back benches who think that they have a shot at being Prime Minister at the next time round. It's, it's difficult to disabuse them of this gently, <laughs> but, you know, hope springs eternal. Um, uh, but, but um, yeah, so is there a degree of this? I mean, you might ask yeah. Jeremy Corbyn the same question. Yeah. He's found a solution to it which is that uh, nobody obeys him, but he still manages to stay there. Uh, he's been voted out three times, but he's still the leader of the opposition. Um, 
don't there think is, that works there, in the Conservative Party. But some, but, um, some, some of the sort of moderate or left-wing Tories draw a parallel between momentum and the kind of UKIP infiltration of the Conservative Party. What do you think about that? Is it a problem? Or no, do you feel no. the two parties <coughs> almost need to come back no, together? No, 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 I don't, I don't think so. An awful lot of UKIP members were once Conservatives and on this issue departed. Mm. Some of those have definitely come back because UKIP's a disgrace. Uh, absolute disgrace. It's some kind of out there in the extreme. So you'd welcome them back? You know? Well, I welcome people who are generally coming back mm. because they want to buy into what you do. It's not, it's not some kind of takeover. And I mean, you know, if you look at conservative associations up and down the country, most of them are wishing that some people will come and join them. Right. Uh, you know, so, uh, and if you, if you get people want to come and do that, then that's fine. But they, they can't come in with their agendas. They have to come in and agree that there is a settled status. It's not... Conservative associations are, I think, fundamentally different from Labour uh, Party membership in right. constituencies. They are, by and large, not politically motivated for the most part. They generally like to get together to talk about things, and they are basically instinctively quite loyal, loyal to their MP, but loyal to their But they're trying to, to oust candidate. all the moderates, left, right, and centre. Sorry? They're trying to oust a lot of the moderates now. There's a lot more talk than reality in right. that. I mm -hmm. mean, there are plenty of colleagues who take different opinions. You know, I was at odds with my government in 1992, three, four, <laughs> more lately uh, in 2015, 2016. 2016. <clears throat> to be fair, though, that in that period, my association was, you know, had problems when I was a bit rebellious at the beginning. Uh, but, you know, they got a balance on that and they're quite reasonable about it. But if it. you had to choose between Nigel Farage and Nick Bowles, who would you be closer to politically? I mean, it's a genuine question. Is there a... Nigel Farage and Nick Bowles. Who would you be closer to politically? I like to think that I'm like one of those ships that will sail serenely through the middle uh, <laughs> and acknowledge both, but not necessarily give them passage. Right. Because, <laughs> I mean, John Major had that whole thing about the bastards and the Eurosceptics and sort of sense of the right wing there getting out of control. And I, I remember talking to Ken Clark once, and he has this <clears> phrase, <throat> you probably heard it, the, it's like the Eurosceptics are like the crocodiles around the boat. You yep. keep feeding them buns, and they'll want more and more buns, but the problem comes when you run out of buns, they come for you. Yeah. Does, I mean, Actually, that's an interesting analogy, because yeah. I did say to Ken after it, I said, what happens if you never feed them the buns? What do they do then? And he said, stupid. Uh, but that was about it, really. But uh, there is a truth <laughs> that politics is about feeding buns, uh, because if you don't feed buns, then they go off and find buns somewhere else. And so right. we can follow this bun analogy to its logical <laughs> conclusion. Ken himself has had a fair amount of buns in his time. <laughs> <clears throat> so it's a very logical point, really. But it did... What did you think of John Major saying that? And that sort of sense that there was the sort of enemies within idea, wasn't there, almost? I do think that that doesn't really help when people say yeah. that because political parties... The, 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 the thing about our situation is we are... We are different, in a sense, from the PR groups because, in actual fact, we elect on the first past the post. Now, interestingly, people say, well, you know, you have single parties. Well, we don't. The difference between us and, say, Holland or whatever is that... We form our coalitions before an election. Yeah. They form theirs after the election. So our coalitions are formed by a general and instinctive sense of that you are more in this belief 
than you are over there. Now, so you would want to have moderates and left-wingers in the Tory well, party? You as are, well. as somebody once said, a bird needs two wings to fly. Yeah. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time on social justice. I've gone out and set up a centre. I've campaigned on And many of, mm. the, of those in that are people that won't agree with me on Europe. But they're very good friends because we're trying to get change. Tomorrow I'm doing, as I said to you earlier, I'm uh, campaigning to try and get uh, a change to the modern-day slavery act to help people who are in real you know, problems, you need to be more moderate and reasonable about it. And I've got lots of allies yeah. who won't be allies of mine on, on Europe. So the idea that political parties are formed by one idea is actually the problem with the Brexit process. In fact, we're not. Yeah. We are wider than that. And if we weren't wider than that, then we wouldn't exist. And that's the problem right now, is we have to remind ourselves that there is more to a political party than one issue, and we and have to remember because that. Because you, you do have a huge problem, don't you, with the young voters, given that 80%, I think, of the people who've turned 18 since the referendum are against Brexit. Yeah. The Tories, I mean, you're in danger. I don't know what, whether your own children went on the march at the weekend. Uh, what, well, the march that was 312,000 uh, by fact checker. I mean, are your children Brexiteers, or you don't need to say, but it's... Well, uh, no, actually, I, I've, I don't think any of them... Well, I've got one daughter in Canada, one daughter in Japan, uh, one son here as a criminal barrister, and another one who's a documentary filmmaker. And to be quite frank with you, I've no idea what they voted. Right. Really? Okay. No, because it's their position. I don't even bother to ask but them. But the, the sort of position of the young is, is you're going to be in danger of alienating them, aren't you, for a generation? If you, well, the Tories we, sort of become we, the party we, of Brexit. I think life moves on. And the one thing, you know, all right, I'm, I know it's hard to believe, but I'm not, you know, 30 anymore. Uh, but the point is, I know it, it is hard, um, but the point is that uh, I think the one lesson you learn in life is if you stay stuck and angry about a single issue, you destroy your life. Life is broader than that. Sometimes you win some, sometimes you lose things. But by and large, in this country, I think things end up in the right place. That is my general view, that is my belief, and I think we just have to recognize that once this is done, I don't care whether people voted leave or remain, at the end of the day, we all care about our country and our job is to just get it through all this and get out the other side. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Ian Duncan-Smith. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.